The following audio is the recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. You can visit our website at strosecc.org. Good morning. If you are with the uh, threes and fours class, you are dismissed back to your class. If you have your Bibles with you, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We will begin reading in verse 10 here in just a moment. If uh, you need an extra copy of God's Word, uh, we've got church members in the back with extras. Just slip up your hand, and they're coming down the aisles now. They'll be glad to hand you one, so you can turn with us to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We have begun our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians, which will take us through the uh, end of the year and into next summer, probably. We've worked through Paul's greeting. We've worked through Paul's introductory prayer of thanksgiving for this church that was planted in the infamous city of Corinth. And now it is time to transition into the main body of Paul's letter to the Corinthians church. So we'll begin reading in verse 10. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 17. Then we're going to pause and pray uh, for God to grant us understanding. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that Each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name, parentheses. Uh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. That, that makes me feel better about myself, doesn't it? <laughs> Paul was a little forgetful. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. All right, let's, let's pray pray together. Lord, we thank you for this book. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this gift of the weekly gathering of the saints where we get to read your word. And God, we come and we ask that you would work the same miracle that you work every week, that you would uh, speak to us through these scriptures you inspired and preserved for us and that father we pray that you would help us to see a little with a little more clarity what it is your plan is for the church what your 
plan is for the cross of Jesus Christ, what it accomplishes here and now and forevermore. We pray, God, that you would convict us of sin, encourage us, uh, stir our hearts with affections and worship and desire to fulfill the mission of God. I pray that people would be saved, that sinners would be convicted, and that all the saints would be stirred to worship. Father, would you work a hundred miracles in this room and more through the preaching of your word? And Father, I pray for the joy of preaching this text, the joy of being consumed by the Spirit of God and saying things that are not from and of myself, but are from and of you alone, Father, we pray that you would meet with us over your word as your people gather, Father. We pray this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our two-year-old, Amelia, has learned that when we say her full name, middle name included, what we mean is business. She knows that when she hears Amelia Grace, that what is to follow is important and it is probably some form of correction. And she knows this so much that now, if she thinks anyone deserves rebuke, she inserts her own middle name after their name. So you might hear my daughter in our house say, Daddy Gracie, Mommy Grace, Owen Grace. There's lots of grace happening in my house. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, is that middle name included kind of address. It is that kind of, we have transitioned from pleasantries and we have moved into the business part of this letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The language is strong. It indicates a transition from the wonderfully optimistic and hopeful prayer of thanksgiving for all of God's grace now to a correction of sorts to the reason for which Paul is writing this letter and that is that all is not well within the Corinthian church first Corinthians is a letter of love that hurts a letter of love written to correct errors that are corrupting the church and hindering the mission of God through the church in a very messed up city that needs the gospel let me just pause right there and say everyone needs someone who will appeal to you as a brother by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone needs someone who will use your middle name if necessary. Everyone needs someone or a group of someones who will write a hard letter or say the hard thing because they love you too much not to say it. Paul writes to the Corinthians not because he enjoys conflict. He writes to the Corinthians because he desires something better for them than what they are living in. Some scholars believe that verse 10 is actually a kind of a, it's a thesis statement, if you will, in the book. It kind of lays down what is the first and primary issue from which a lot of the other issues will uh, explain. Namely, the issue is that the church at Corinth was a divided church, a church not united around the truth of the gospel. So look at verse 10. 
I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In, in the Greek, the word same is actually repeated three times to emphasize something. That phrase, that all of you agree, is more literally that you speak the same thing or that you speak samely. So he says that you speak the same thing, that you're united in the same mind, that you're united in the same judgment or opinion or, or thought. There's an undergirding theological conviction from the first verse of the body of this letter, and this is the conviction. Truth number one, unity is essential for Christ's church. Unity is essential for Christ's church. Now, one of the beautiful things about preaching expositionally through books of the Bible, uh, if I would have just picked this text at random and every week was random, you would think I was addressing some sort of massive division within our church. That is not the case. We are letting the gospel, we're letting the word speak to us, but God's timing is sovereign. And for some reason, God would have us here studying this conviction that unity is essential for Christ's church. Verse 10 provides us with Paul's ideal for life together in Corinth. He desires their unity and he condemns their divisiveness. That word division is where we get our English word uh, schism. Paul is urging that there be no rift or tear or camps or factions that would divide the church into church into uh, competing groups of people. Paul desires that they be united in speech, that they speak samely. The church must be different than the world that the Corinthians live in. The church must be a place where people use their words in a way that is unifying, in a way that builds up, makes peace, does not disparage in a way that is constructive, not vindictive. In verse 11, we're told the people in Corinth are quarreling, meaning means they're, they're using their words to tear down not just arguments, but people. And this happens when you go from disagreeing with someone's position to attacking someone personally, right? Words are powerful. They matter to God, and they can do a great deal of good, and they can do a great deal of harm. We learned that in Proverbs, that words are powerful tools for death or for life. Quarrelsome speech is a speech that provokes, a speech that doesn't have the listener's best interest in mind, a speech designed to build up self and tear down the other. And Paul's concerned that the church is no longer marked by speech that is in harmony. His concern is that they've weaponized words, not for the sake of clarity, but for the sake of exerting them Selves. Now, this was a very much a part of Corinthian culture, right? So, so the celebrities of the day uh, were what was called sophists, wisdom speakers, debaters in Corinth that would fill coliseums by the way they used their words. Corinthians would gather for entertainment purposes to watch these great philosophical debates, and they would use rhetoric and oration to destroy and humiliate their opponent and really that was what everyone was there for they were there for the zingers not necessarily the content worldly wisdom and the ability to turn the phrase 
Wisdom teachers would have their own cheering sections in Corinth. People would tribalize behind their favorite orator. I'm of the wisdom of so-and-so, and I'm of the wisdom of so-and-so. And it's not so different from the world stage of politics and social media, is it? People love the one-liners. They love the zingers that humiliate the intellectual opponent regardless of the argument. Twitter and Facebook are very much like Corinthian culture broadcasted. 24-7. So it's no wonder that such divisive speech made its way into the church in the first century. It's no wonder divisive speech makes it its way into our church. And what Paul wants is for them to have a kind of sameness to their speech, a harmony, a peacemakingness to their speech. But not just that they would talk that way, but that they would actually be that way. He actually wants unity around common faith, common belief. Paul understands the church of Jesus Christ to be a common unity, a fellowship, a gathering that unites around something, that that unifies around a truth. And this is very, very important, church. This is very, very important because the thing, this is what you're fed on a daily basis in our present culture. One of the great lies of our age is that doctrine divides or that truth divides. The harder you hold on to true things, the more divisive you are. The lie is that to hold biblical truth firmly is a divisive position in our culture. What you need to do is hold to it loosely and say things like your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and we're all going to be okay. And so let me pause here. In all of Paul's teaching about unity, he never says anything like that. Paul never emphasizes unity at the expense of doctrine. He never emphasizes unity at the expense of truth rightly believed. Unity is not triumphant. Unity is not key. It's not primary. It's not the main thing. It's the result of standing firmly on a solid rock that all of us are standing on together. You see, he never emphasizes unity at the expense of truth. He always emphasizes a unity that is primarily founded on the doctrine that we believe together. So to be a Christian in this room, to be a Christian, you have to believe certain true things. you got to believe that you're a sinner. you got to believe that you need a Savior, and that that Savior is Jesus, who lived, died, and rose again as your substitute. You have to believe that salvation is only had through Him, by grace, through faith, in Him. To be a member of this church... You have to believe some things, that the Bible is God's word, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, that eternal life is received by faith alone, in Jesus alone. To be a member of this church, you have to be baptized as a believer, symbolizing your faith in these things. Today, someone will be baptized. What that is, is an act of obedience to Jesus Christ himself, saying, I publicly profess I'm with all these people on what they believe about Jesus. You see, it's the truth we believe and we hold to that actually gathers us around one another because we're all founded on these true things we believe. Truth unites a church because we believe that it's the truth that unites us for eternity. You see, yes, truth 
in one sense, does divide. It will divide all people on the day of judgment. Those who believe the truth will go on to eternal life, and those who embrace the lie will go on into eternal death. So what is the church but the visual representation of those united around the truth that leads to eternal life? To be a biblical church, we unite on the foundation of what God has said. Ephesians 2 19, Paul says this about the church. You're, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and you're members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles, that is the New Testament writings, and the prophets, Old Testament writings, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the key to interpreting it all. How are you members of the household of God? You stand on the same truth, Old Testament, New Testament, Christ being the climax of it all. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he refers to the church as the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he burst into a confession of common things that we believe. It's our confession of the same things that makes us a church. Now, you might be sitting here, saying, why is he so passionately arguing? Like, yeah, we get that. Like, we believe that. The world wants to destroy that. The world says our unity around one truth is unloving. That our unity around one thing is unloving because it excludes those who do not believe that truth. And we say, no, 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 it's loving because we're trying to tell you on judgment day, you will be excluded forever and ever and ever from relationship with God without uniting around this truth. So what would be unloving for us to do would be to say you're included out of love and then you be surprised on the day when you face God. And he says you're actually excluded because you refuse the truth. We unite around the truth and then we invite the world to come stand on the truth with us which is faith in Christ alone. Paul, for Paul, unity is very important for the church because Christ is not divided. His message is not multiple message. He is not loosey-goosey. Your truth is your truth. No, Jesus Christ has one message that's true in all places, all times, for all people. Therefore, the church has to be this place that represents the message they claim to hold. A people changed by the truth enough that it changes their lives. We prove the legitimacy of the truth by how united we are on this one truth. Verse 13, Paul goes on to ask a rhetorical question, is Christ divided? The obvious answer is no, but the implication is, is that the Corinthian church is making him look that way. And thus robbing Christ of the power of the message that he truly has. Now, let's look into what's actually happening. Uh, Paul's making this appeal in verse 10 because he's heard some stuff. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's a quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, let me just pause right there. It's, 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 uh, it's telling that Paul has heard about the, the situation in Corinth third hand. 
Now, we know from the letter, Paul has been exchanging letters with Corinth already. Like, this is not the first letter. He's been in communication with them. But he has not heard about their divisiveness through them. He's heard it third hand. One of the commentators makes this point. Uh, Gordon Fee says this. He says, the point is that Paul has now been informed about the true condition of the community, which probably differs considerably from what he would have picked up from their letter. Now, this scene is uh, too familiar to us. The Corinthians had not told the apostle, their founding church planting pastor, if you will, what was going on in their midst. They had not communicated to him any perspectives or teaching that were developing in the congregation. Paul had to find it out from Chloe's people. Chloe, likely a business person, traveling back and forth from Corinth to Ephesus. It's not clear whether she's a member of the church or whether she visited in Corinth, but she knows something bad is going on that Paul should know about. Whatever the case is, she recognizes a serious problem. And let me just pause here, and this is like a side note commercial. If you are doing something in your life or making a decision in your life and you're avoiding the people whom you know will give you wise counsel, you're probably not doing something wise, right? I mean, this is just a side note, little, little thing. If you go around asking everyone whom you know will give you the advice you want to hear and you're avoiding the person you know who will give you the advice you need to hear, you're likely acting like the Corinthians, if, if the wise person in your life has to find it out from Chloe, not the Chloe here, sorry, Chloe, <laughs> or Chloe's people, whoever they are, right, then you're probably avoiding the counsel you actually need. So Paul's heard about the situation by third party. He goes on to clarify, this is what I've heard about you guys, verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, now we're not given any more details than that, and we're just left to kind of fill in the gaps. Like, what in the world is actually happening in this church? We have to fill in the blanks with what we see from the letter later in 1 Corinthians, because we don't know what actually is happening. But this is what we do know, and this is what we do see, and this is truth number two. Division invades Christ's church from a variety of sources. Paul says there's, a, there's different groups boasting over and against one another based upon which Christian teacher they identify with most. And I think there's at least three inter- interconnected sources for what's happening in this moment in the church. So these are little subpoints here under truth two. Number one, firstly, a divided church exalts their own preferences. A divided church exalts their own preferences. So at the most surface level issue of what's ever happening in Corinth, people have picked favorites. Members of the Corinthians church began to prefer one leader over the other though each of the leaders are preaching the same gospel. Now, I don't know exactly what reason this is. Allow me to provide a couple of examples from the context. For one reason or another, some members, they've respected Paul and his theological nuance, his precision. Perhaps they felt a special loyalty to him because he planted their church, and they're saying, I'm with Paul. Some Members are respecting Apollos, who was known for his skill in presentation, his handling of the scriptures. It appears that Apollos, from other verses in scripture, he was a little bit more entertaining than Paul. 
Uh, Paul put people to sleep to the point where they fell out of windows, right? So we, we don't have anybody sitting up high in here because we take, took that principle from Scripture. Don't want anybody to fall. Paul was putting people to sleep. Apollos apparently didn't have that problem quite as much. Whatever the case may be, the members begin to let personal preferences dictate their interactions with one another, their devotions to the church. But it's never as simple as people dividing over preferences. It's never that simple. They were preferences, but those preferences were based off of worldly perspectives. So subtitle number two here, a divided church embraces worldly perspectives. Now, why did they have these particular preferences? Well, I think from the context of the letter, we can see that they're valuing particular leaders based off what the world values most rather than what the Lord values most. So I just want you to look at the argument that's going to unfold over the next few chapters. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul says, For I consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, why would Paul emphasize such things immediately after saying, you're dividing over which leader that you think is best. He said, you guys aren't awesome. <laughs> Why do you think that the most important thing is strength and power and oration and rhetoric? Apparently there was something not that impressive about Paul. He, didn't, he wasn't impressive in the world's eyes. He continues in chapter 2. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you with, with weakness and in trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power. So he's saying, I didn't come to you speaking like the guys down the street in the Colosseum. I'm not as impressive as them. Again, in chapter 3, verse 3, you are still of the flesh. While there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh behaving only in a human way? When one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human? All this context begins to help us. It gives us a little bit more understanding what's happening in the church. They had embraced Corinthian values. Power, strength, prestige, eloquence, lofty speech, wisdom, worldly impressiveness. They were grading their leaders based off of what the world values most, and, and then they were associating themselves with those leaders. Paul was a broken man, a scarred man. He had been beaten and imprisoned. His physical stature was not impressive. He was not going to be the guy picked first for the Olympian Games. What happened was the Corinthian church began to exalt their worldly perspective and their preferences. And here's the real crux of the matter, and this is the last subtitle here. A divided church entertains their pride. I use the word entertain purposefully because pride in us is this kind of enjoyable thing that we entertain in the recesses of our hearts 
apart from us even realizing. The, the division in Corinth was not as simple as just people picking favorites. The division was fueled by the fires of arrogance in the soul. As individuals argued for Paul to be the greatest and most authoritative teacher, or Apollos, the greatest and most authoritative teacher, they also identified themselves with the great one. As individuals argued for Apollos, they identified themselves with Apollos. And we do this all the time. You, you have this in your heart. We give glory to something or someone with whom we identify closely so we feel a sense of the glory. When we demean one party and we identify with a different one, we, we never identify with the worst party, right? <laughs> we, we get a sense of self-satisfaction when we're on the winning Team, you do this all the time in sports. Now, I know if you're an LSU fan, maybe you don't know how this feels right now. But I'm a Georgia fan. And when they win the championship two years in a row, there's something inside of me that rejoices among the winners as if I've contributed to the success. And I have not contributed to the success. Despite my screams and yelling at the TV, right, I did nothing to help old Stetson throw the touchdown. But for some reason, my soul's happy as if I'm there doing the thing. I associate my joy with the glory of this thing which I identify with. I love being associated with the better or the strong or the smarter or the winner. That's the reality of sports. That's the reality of politics. There's a sinful itch that is in your soul that wants to be scratched when you associate with the, what you deem to be the more glorious leader and publicly mock one leader to uplift your own. You realize something in your soul, when you make fun of this political leader, something in your soul goes, ooh, because you are associating with the more glorious as you put down the less glorious. Do you feel that? Do you feel that? That you enjoy it? The reason you enjoy it is because you're arrogant. And the reason I enjoy it is because I want to be glorified. And I'm arrogant. We can't stand the amount of humbling work it would take to look past differences, sins, failures, wrongdoings, weaknesses of others. We can't stand not availing of ourselves the opportunity to prove ourselves right. And we're on the right side of the issue. Why do your fights in your marriages last as long as they do? Because all of the information's not out? Or because someone needs to win? It feels much, much better to disparage with words uh, while we simultaneously identify as the wise, true, and righteous. And this has gone so far in the Corinthian church that people are actually boasting in which teacher baptized them. They're boasting in their baptismal association. And Paul doesn't want any of this. I mean, Paul is like, get me as far away from this as you possibly can. Look at verse 14. I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I, I, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. It's like, well, that's beside the point. <laughs> Paul says what's important is, is that you've taken... Something like baptism, and you've distorted it for your own glory. 
Paul wants nothing to do with being idolized as the Christian teacher whom they can identify with. He argues that they missed the point entirely on baptism. Baptism, and here's this, here's the irony of it. Baptism is an association with someone else's glory. But not Paul's. And not anybody in Corinth's. Baptism is an association with the glory of Christ Jesus. He's the winning team. He's the righteous one, the wise one, whom, whom we identify with and associate. When I, when I cheer for my football team two Saturdays from now or one Saturday from now, I contribute nothing to the victory, and I honestly get nothing from the victory. But in the sake of Christ, or in the case of Christ... I contribute nothing to the victory, but I actually am a benefactor of the victory. He is glorified. And as he is glorified in me, I am changed. I am satisfied in him. As he's my joy and strength and praise to him, as he is magnified in my life and soul, I rejoice in all that he's done. My association with Christ is a totally Christ-exalting one. He gets all the glory. The more I associate with him as my all in all, the more I recognize my need for him, and my pride is destroyed in the process. And really what Paul does in this whole text, as he says, this is the ticket. The whole aim of the book of 1 Corinthians is right here. It is to recenter the Corinthian church on the center of it all. That is the message of Christ crucified. If you all believe this, then disunity will quickly dissolve in your midst. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then he goes on to this lengthy exhortation about the power of the message of Christ crucified. In other words, if you've made your Christianity about me or my giftings or my words, you've missed Christianity altogether. Truth number three, and this is our final one, unity is empowered by Christ crucified. The Corinthian church was dividing by exalting their preferences, by embracing the world's perspective on what was most important, by entertaining their pride, and Paul warns That such divisiveness is a focus on the wrong thing, and it robs the cross of Christ of its power. It renders the cross of Christ powerless. And as we will see, Paul says the cross of Christ is not powerless, and you are acting like it is. It is the very power of God to save, and it is the empowerment to unite you as a crazy Corinthian church. It's the content of the gospel message of Christ crucified that saves souls and unifies sinners. It's the gospel believed and obeyed that shows you how to crucify your preferences, perspective, and pride in community with one another. It frees you from having to prove yourself because the cross already proved that you have nothing to prove. I mean, he went to the cross because you deserve to go there. You, you, You have nothing to boast in. The cross slays our pride. He will have the last word. 
It frees us to disagree on secondary things because of the strength of our commitment to the primary thing, which I am Christ and Christ is mine. It calls us to crucify our flesh. I want to read a quote from a book called A Gospel Primer um, that I've recommended a couple times here. And this is what he says about just this message of crucifixion. Listen to what he says. He says, The Bible is not simply the story of Christ and him crucified. It's also the story of my own crucifixion. The Bible tells me that I too was crucified on Christ's cross. My old self was slain there, and my love affair with the world was crucified there too. The cross is also the place I crucify my flesh and its sinful desires. He says, I should expect every day to encounter circumstances, evidence of God's commitment to my dying. I must seize upon every God opportunity to be conformed more fully to Christ's death, no matter the pain involved. When my flesh yearns for some prohibited thing, I must die. When called to do something I don't want to do, I must die. When I wish to be selfish and serve no one, I must die. When shattered by hardships that I despise, I must die. When wanting to cling to wrong things done against me, I must die. When enticed by the allurements of the world, I must die. When wants that borderline needs are left unmet, I must die. When dreams that are good seem to be shoved aside, I must die. Not my will but yours be done. Christ trustingly prayed on the eve of his crucifixion and preaching his story to myself each day puts me in a frame of mind to trust God and embrace the cross of my own dying also. The facts surrounding Christ's resurrection stand as proof positive that God will not leave me for dead but will raise me similarly. If I would only allow myself to die, indeed on the other side of each layer of dying lies experiences of life with God that are far richer, far higher, far more intimate than anything I would have otherwise known. You see, for Paul, division in the church was simply a sign that the church had forgotten the primary message, that they were united by a Jesus who died for them, and that they, to follow Jesus meant dying to themselves and love for each other as well. Dying to their preferences, dying to the world's perspectives, dying to their pride. So I wanna close here, and I just want you to consider for a moment your most tumultuous relationships in life. Perhaps it's division that has made its way into your house, with your spouse, with your children, with your closest friends. What would it look like if you interacted in that situation as if Christ died for you and calls you to express the same kind of love in that situation, a self-dying love? Following Jesus will not allow you to entertain pride, walk in the world's perspective, or exalt preferences. And so to follow Jesus, it'll be temporarily painful, but eternally glorious. Three truths this morning. Unity is essential for Christ's church. Division invades in a variety of ways. And unity is empowered by Christ crucified. So let's crucify our flesh and enjoy the unity of resurrection life together. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that the gospel of Christ crucified would infiltrate and invade our marriages and our friendships. Um, Father, our relationships, I pray that each of us would remember the message that unites us primarily and we would preach that message to ourselves every day. Father, may this church be a place of unity by your grace, for your glory, through the message of a crucified Savior. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.